0: what you might hear this morning hopefully hopefully it all flows And I think part of the reason is because there's a glorious reality here about the gospel that is made in verse 11 and verse 11 is really the place where this morning my notes just stop making sense and we just may have some fun in verse 11 noteless joy okay so if you want to look ahead at verse 11 please feel free to do so But there's some glorious things in verse 11, so we'll just see what happens there. Um, Let me read verse 8 through 11, then we're going to do our introduction and jump into the exposition of our text this morning. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's still blowing my mind. The blessed God. That's what's blowing my mind this morning. I'm I'm, I'm hung there and can't get over that. I saw... I'm totally like rabbit trailing. I saw a license plate this morning driving here. It said blessed. And I can't... Blessed is applied to God here. I'm just careful about how I use the word blessed in regard to me. You know what I'm saying? The blessed God. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. When we were together last time in Timothy, two weeks ago, we saw that there were some teachers in verse 3 through 7 that have been teaching speculative teachings that aren't rooted in the correct exposition of the text. And, and, And this is just something for you to just chew on here. As you grow in reading your Bible you are going to find yourselves having to self-correct the rest of your life. There's nobody in this room who has arrived. Okay? And we're going to read texts. We're going to make conclusions. We're going to wrestle with them. There's some hard text to read in your Bible. If you've got it figured out, please come talk to me. Because you and Jesus need to instruct me a little bit more. And so... We're always being challenged to exposit correctly and deal with the text well. And we've seen that there are some teachers who've been teaching speculation rather than the deep rooting of the biblical text. We discovered some tools the last time we were together to help us avoid believing false teaching as well as propagating false teaching. recap those very quickly. Number one, don't presume to be a teacher flippantly, James 3.1. That should be carefully approached. James tells us we should not presume to be teachers for those who do will incur a stricter judgment. It is a deadly serious thing to stand and say, I'm speaking on behalf of God. So don't flippantly take that role on. Number two, don't come to expositional conclusions using extra biblical text. If you have to have a specialized degree, documents outside of the Bible, and various and other sundry tools to come to a conclusion, the chances are your conclusion is wrong. If a regular pastor with no degree in China can't come to the conclusion, I came to with my master's degree, there's a good shot I'm wrong and he's right. And so don't come to expositional conclusions using extra biblical text. Use scripture to interpret scripture. We must be able to come to biblical conclusions using the scripture by Holy Spirit teaching. Men, women, children, boys and girls using the Bible by itself. Number 3, don't build theological systems on obscure passages of scripture, particularly on obscure single verses. Number 4, Leave your agendas on the table, or better, at the door. Don't go to biblical texts looking to justify your conclusion. Go to the text with a blank agenda and let the text fill your agenda. Don't use the Bible like Adolf Hitler. Number five, gather with the people of God to be equipped, worship and filter your study through community and submit to biblical leadership. And so that's what we saw as some tools to help us navigate The problem is not the law from which the teachers were teaching. The problem was not the law from which the teachers were teaching. The problem was with the teachers whose hearts were not pure, whose consciences were tainted and their faith misplaced. False teachers seem to love teaching more than the God they are teaching about. And so therefore their consciences are foggy due to the lack of purity and their faith being more like like witchcraft that produces their desires rather than unwavering trust in the God of the Bible that's constructed on evidence from Scripture and hope that the Father of all things has provided. So Paul, rather than leaving us with this impression that somehow the law was the problem, comes down to verse 8 and he helps us to see that the law is actually good. And the law has an aim. I say frequently here at school when I'm teaching my students, and you've heard me say this to you, that we refer to the Scriptures as the manual. This is because it is the manual on all things. Whether addressed directly or by implication due to direct address of related issues, Scripture is the guidebook. It's the manual for knowing God, for living life according to His blueprint. If we jettison the law, we jettison God. The writers of the New Testament live life in grace based on the Old Testament. Therefore, this morning, we, along with Paul, affirm that the law is good when one uses it lawfully. Now, when we say law this morning, let me be clear. We don't mean just the Ten Commandments, but the entirety of the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains the beginnings of the meta-narrative of the gospel in creation and the fall, the beginning of the restoration and the establishment of God's covenants with His people. And the New Testament kicks off the end times where we are speeding toward the return of Christ and the completion of the Great Commission. So the law refers to the entire working out of God's covenants with man leading up to Christ. Then the New Testament reveals Christ fulfilling the law, commanding the invasion of all nations with the gospel. So this morning when Paul says the law, he means the entirety of your Old Testament. So let's take a look at what the right use of the law means, okay? Point number one from verse eight. The law is beautiful when used as it's intended. The law is beautiful when it is used as it is intended. The phrase here says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The word law is nomos. Its descriptor, kalos, means beautiful or good. So it's actually appropriate to translate the word kalos as beautiful as well as good. The nomos, the law, is kalos. It's beautiful if one uses it nomiomos. The law is beautiful if one uses it lawfully. The law is gorgeous if one uses it as it's intended to be used. Paul affirms the beauty of the law used properly. This implies that the law has a proper use and a, very good, and improper use, exactly. So before ever launching into a passionate pursuit based on a misuse of old testament text as a biblical mandate for your particular passion be very careful lest we step into the camp of those who are teaching speculation and misleading people the text is not intended to be used as a launching point for your thing rather its intention is to show you the glorious truth of the gospel make sure you understand this is bible study hint bible study note understand the author's intent All biblical interpretation begins with understanding the author's intent. Now, there's a worldview's total rabbit trail. Deconstruction. Who knows about deconstruction? we got like one, two, all right, three, four, some brave people finally raising their hands. Deconstruction is an idea gained in the Middle Ages or sometime around the Enlightenment, more accurately, that the idea in literature is it is impossible to uncover in writing the author's original intent. So therefore, interpretation began to be more about the interpreter rather than the object of their interpretation, such as the idea of when you go to, to if you watch this in, in the development of art even. Art began first, of, first off as a depiction of reality. Right? You look at this guy can paint a bowl of fruit. Look, the apple looks just like the apple there. It's a real. It's beautiful, right? He depicted real life, and then it began to be more of a projection of what's happening inside the individual. So you go to an art museum, and what do you do? We ask the question, "What does that mean to you?" Why? Because I can't discern the author's original meaning. Now we take that into theological circles, and we say this all the time in Bible studies: "What does it mean to?" As if it matters what I think. It means something and it, the question is, what does it mean, not what do I, what does, what do I think? And so this idea that, that I can go to the text and say what means this to me and you can say it means something that's totally opposite of what I said it means and we can both be right is horrible. You can't do that to scripture. Deconstruction as a worldview is predicated on the idea that there is no God. And therefore, meaning is inside of the interpreter. That's atheism. We're not atheists, if you hadn't noticed. There's a Bible that says there's a God, and it tells us who this God is. And so therefore, it tells us, John 17, 17, it's a noun. This is truth. Meaning, it does not affirm anything contrary to fact. Meaning, my job is to go there and see what the author's intent is. Who's the single author of the whole Bible? God! And He used many scribes. It's one book, many chapters, one theme, one purpose, one author, many scribes. And so therefore, when I go to the text, I don't go asking, what does it mean to me? The question is, what does it mean? And you know what? As a culture, we're lazy readers. We don't want to pay attention to adjectives and adverbs and pronouns, main verbs. Can you diagram a sentence? Probably not. You should be able to. You think it matters what the direct object is? Yeah! It matters every day in life. You just assume it. And so therefore, when we come to the text, we don't launch into passionate pursuits based on speculation. We go to the text recognizing it is beautiful if we use it as as for its intended purpose, lawfully. The law is beautiful. I would dare say maybe many of us from Malachi back, pages are still stuck together. Right? Right? Like you're still trying to plow through and say, well, I haven't been... Dude, it's like the pages are stuck because you've never turned to that page. And what I'd say to you is you're missing out on the beauty of the glory of the blessed God with which this law and gospel coincide. Make sure you go to the text seeking the author's intent first. Understand its application in its historical setting. Understand the intent within the framework of the gospel. And you will be well on your way to being a phenomenal Old Testament scholar. I just saved you about $20,000 of master's level payment. Right there. You ought to be like praising Jesus. You just got a seminary education in those three points. I'm not even lying. So the law is beautiful, Paul says, if one uses it lawfully. If one uses it as it is intended. Which leads us to verse 9 and 10. The proper use of the law. Paul says in verse 9 and 10, he he ends, now Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, comma, Understanding this. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly and sinner, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul starts off verse 9 and 10 helping us to understand the proper use of the law by saying, understanding this. Meaning, in order to use the law properly, you must understand what he's about to say. He says the law is not laid down for the just. So, the first step in understanding the law is to understand that it is not laid down for the just. It is given for those who are righteous. So therefore, who is it for? All of us! All of us! No one is exempt from its usefulness. It's not laid down for the just. None of us apart from Christ is just. Therefore, the law is for everyone. And Paul gives a list of all the categories that we all fall into. He says the lawless, the anomos, those who have no law. Those with no sense of boundary. Those with no sense of a fortification with which they can pass. The lawless. The disobedient. Those, the word literally means those who do not subject themselves. So therefore, if you're disobedient, you're not subjecting yourself to proper authority. Meaning, you may not be breaking a specific rule, but if you're not subject to someone, you're disobedient. The ungodly, which by the way, we're all already condemned. We got through two. And we all fallen into a category. The ungodly, those literally without worship. The sinners, those who miss the mark. Anybody already been condemned? Already today? Yes, alright, we're already there. The profane, those who are unhallowed. Literally barred from the threshold of the temple. Those striking their father and mothers, And what he begins to do now is he lists some specific decalogues, some specific Ten Commandments. Commandment 5, to honor your father and your mother, right? Those striking fathers and mothers. Murderers, Commandment 6, don't murder. The sexually immoral, Commandment 7. Those who practice homosexuality, Commandment 7. Enslavers, literally those who steal humans, Commandment 8. Liars, commandment 9, bearing false witness. Perjurers, commandment 9, those who bear false witness. And then he has this catch-all category, lest you've escaped any of those. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, this law does something very specific. And here's what it does. And we're going to see some passages here in just a moment. No one in the church is above the Scriptures. And Paul doesn't want the people to believe that since some has misused the Scriptures, that they're now no longer valid. Just because some may have taught speculation from the law doesn't mean, therefore, that we throw the law away. Rather, we must understand that it is beautiful if one uses it for its intended purpose. So, therefore, ask the question, what's the right use of the law? I'm going to give you four correct uses of the law number one the law serves to reveal sin and lead us to Christ what did that list just do for you showed you that you and I are all still what sinners it reveals the fact that sin still plays a role in my decision making it reveals sin to be sin. Romans three nineteen and 20. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law reveals my specific issues. You know what? I had this incredible revelation this week for me. We were walking back. I was walking back from checking on where Jennifer and the boys had to park the car on Tuesday evening in order to get home. And I was walking in the snow and, and I was noticing the cool things around that I wanted. And I realized something, that all the little sins that I commit are really not the object of my root issue. Those are fruit. I'm a coveter. I had this moment where it was no longer, I sin like this and I sin like this. It was the root of those little fruits is coveting. I'm a coveter. I want everything everybody else has. And I had this moment where I was like, Dang! That's that's that hurts. That's deep. That that cuts down to the quick of who I am. And and, and the reason is because I've been reading this all week and I've been reading the stuff all week and I realize I'm just a blasted coveter. Like I make the top ten. And it revealed my issue. The law reveals sin. But the law also does something pretty amazing. It leads us to Christ. Galatians 3.24. I memorized Galatians 3.24 in New American Standard. As a new Christian, I cut my teeth in the New American Standard, so I still sort of quote things in NASB, although I use the ESV. And the ESV does an okay job of translating it. The NASB, if you ever just do a Bible study, note, if you want just straight up Greek and Hebrew into English, so you can see word order, you like a nerd like me, Go get an NASB. Awesome. It's wooden, kind of hard to read, but it's like word orders intact. Like It's like, here's the word, here's how you translate it, boom, move on. It's great. And, and, and it, it translates Galatians 3.24 like this. The law became our tutor to lead us to Christ. The law was my teacher to show me I don't measure up. And therefore, I need a Savior. You ever read Leviticus? And you realize, I can't... I can't even get out of the book without being absolutely condemned. And there's, there's a weightiness. You read it and it's not like, oh, joy, I read Leviticus. There's this, ah oh, of nastiness. That's what, That's it. Yes, you are. I am. And it's my teacher to show me I need a liberator from the fall. Adam and Eve subjected me to the fall. I was born guilty, condemned. I need a Savior. leads me to the Savior. It leads me to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that glorious? You read the Old Testament, you'll find yourself groping for salvation. And God is just good like this, that He will provide you a moment in the story of relief where He provides one. Every time. Even in Leviticus. Let me show you something that that hit me this week in my Bible reading. It just happened to be in God's good providence where I was reading this week. Mark chapter 7. A good illustration of how the, the Old Testament sort of works. Mark chapter 7 beginning in verse 14 through 23. Listen to Jesus, how He debunks speculation and helps us to see the intent of the law. And He called the people to Him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing... What just happened is His disciples have been condemned for picking and eating grain with unwashed hands and such and on the Sabbath and so on and so forth. And, and, uh, and He's having this conversation with some of the bad guys, and He calls His people to him. Verse 14, He said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. When Jesus says, hear me and understand, that's a good indication. You need to be hearing and pay attention. He's about to teach you something. There is nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile Him. What did Jesus just do? If you read no further, what did He tell you the source of sin is? What comes in or what comes out? Meaning that the source of sin lies within, not what I put in. Does that not liberate you? Does that not help you to see something amazing there? Who's the sinner? Me. It's not the bacon. It's not the pork. And I'm being serious. It's not the pork. It's not the shellfish. It's not wearing mixed fabric clothing. (laughs) It's not. That's in Leviticus, by the way. You're all condemned because everything you have on is mixed fabric. You can't even wear the right clothes. Who's going to liberate us? King Jesus. So he says, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? I love how he answers them sometimes. It's just great. It's like, dude, really? You didn't get that? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Do you get it? It's the heart. It's the heart. Is your heart good? No. It's evil. Listen, he goes on. Thus he declared all foods clean. Yes. And he said... What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within and out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What's the point? The law shows me my sin, leads me to look for a Savior. Man, you read your Old Testament and you are desperately looking for Jesus. Even if you eat broccoli as your only meal for the rest of your life, you're still going to produce sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, etc. It is not what you put in. It is the evil heart inside of us and the law makes that clear. Second way to understand and read the law is that it serves to restrain individuals from trespassing onto the wrong territory. Psalm 19, verse 13, David prays, Lord, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. You ever read Psalm 19 and went, yeah, I need that bad. Don't you presume on the Lord's grace daily? Oh, he's going to forgive me. It's good. It's all right. What's David praying? Keep me from that. In other words, Lord, put your hand down. Hold me. Restrain me. Keep me from doing that. What does the law do? It serves to restrain us from trespassing into the wrong territory. Let me say this to you. It's not okay to keep moving into sin assuming that, that, that it's all right. It's not. That's called presumptuous sin. And David prays, Lord, keep me back from that. Keep me back from that. And the law is full of glorious examples of the Lord keeping His people back from presumptuous sins. What happened with Saul and his sin of presumption? Samuel's late. I'll provide the sacrifice. I'll take the role. I'll play God. Your kingdom has been stripped from you and given to someone better than you. The law serves to restrain individuals from trespassing. What did the Lord tell Saul through Samuel? Don't do that. Stop. Stop. This is why I'm a terrible counselor. My concept of counseling is stop it. Right check. Leave it in the box on the way out. It was good. That was awesome. Like that's efficient, man. It took all of ten seconds. Stop it. Right? The law serves as a, that kind of counseling sometimes. It tells us, not to trespass into the wrong territory. Stop. Hold back. Don't do that. Don't presume on the Lord's grace. A third thing that the law does for us is it serves to point out works that please God. Romans thirteen eight to 10 Paul says in this little section, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You go and you read the Scriptures and it tells us the things that makes God happy. We're told in Ephesians 4.30 not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You ever thought about when I presume upon the Lord I make the Holy Spirit sad? So we read and we learn the things that make God happy mean Jehoshaphat and Ahab, kings. Ahab, a wicked king. Jehoshaphat, a fairly decent king in Judah. Ahab, a terrible, wicked, pagan king of the northern kingdom. And Ahab just presumes, and at least Jehoshaphat says, do we not have a prophet here that will speak for the Lord? The law will teach us the things that please God. Can we hear from the Lord before we go off into battle? I think it's a pretty good idea, don't you? Yeah, i got this one guy, but he never says anything good about me. Go get him. Right? So the law shows us the things that please God. We learn in reading the law, and this is beautiful, to imitate the Father's passion. We learn to imitate His gentleness. And we learn to imitate His righteous wrath. And you know who we see this best illustrated in? Jesus. Jesus imitated the Father's passion by speaking boldly. You ever read Matthew 23? That's some bold words spoken to the Pharisees. You hypocrites. You brood of vipers. You travel over land and sea to make a convert, and when you do, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. That's bold. That's rough. That's Jesus. But then he also imitates the Father's gentleness by gently healing those who were hurt. And man, then Jesus imitates the Father's righteous wrath by turning over tables and chasing people with whips. You read that one? I love that one. That's one of my favorites. My, that sort of, I'm, I'm down with that. I can, I can fulfill that naturally. I don't even need much help for that. Let's that's, that's get in the flesh. I can pull that one off. But we learn to imitate the Father's passion, gentleness, and righteous wrath. The law teaches us the things that please God. You know, God wants you to be passionate about some things. He wants you to be gentle about some, and He wants you to be angry about others. The Bible never tells us to not be angry. It says, do not sin in your anger, which means there is righteous anger. There are things you ought to be fired up about, and you ought to boldly speak about and stand up for. A passive Christian, I would argue, is not a Christian. Fourth, the law serves to help us grow in relationship to the Father. The law serves to help us grow in relationship to the Father. Search the law to know Father well and to know what the Psalms call His testimonies. You ever read the Psalms and they say, Your testimonies are a joy to my heart. Like When I hear testimony, I think about, I think about, the lady standing up in the little Southern Baptist church telling what the Lord has done for her. And you know what? That's right. Here's what the Lord has done for me. And when you read the Old Testament and the psalmist talks about your testimonies cheer my heart, what's he saying? He's saying all the people speaking about the glorious things you have done, they strengthen my heart. When I read about Joseph trusting the Lord in the Old Testament, I'm willing to, when I'm in prison, have a cheerful soul because the Lord makes no errors. What they intended for evil, God meant for good. That testimony cheers the soul. Your testimonies are a delight. So search the Old Testament to know Father well. And to know those testimonies of how God has worked in history. Search the law to know how to imitate Father well as His ambassadors. You want to be like Joseph? You want to imitate the Father well? Search the law to know how to imitate Him well. Search the Old Testament, but know how to read and interpret New Testament texts that quote the Old Testament text. You read New Testament that Paul whips out this quote from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than anybody. You think I ought to go read Deuteronomy? Hmm, maybe so. Maybe so. Search it to know how to read and interpret New Testament texts. You know, the greatest thing that'll ever happen to you is when, when at some point in the future, when you're reading over the New Testament, you got, like, Dad, Gummit, I've read that somewhere before, and it clicks. Like, wait, that's Zephaniah. And you realize, wow, that's how Paul read that. Meaning, if Paul interpreted Zephaniah that way, then I, hey, he just showed me how to read my Bible. Yes. Yes. A thousand times yes, please. When the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, he just showed you how to read your Bible. It's a self-contained seminary class. Free. Amazing. Amazing. Search it to know how to read and interpret New Testament texts. Third point. One point, two point, not third point. This is verse eleven. This is where I may have to. We'll see. We'll just see. The proper use of the law. This is this is crazy. Still blowing my mind. Is in harmony with the gospel. The proper use of the law is in harmony with the gospel. See if see if that point makes sense. Verse 11. He ends verse 10 with a comma. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, comma, in accordance with. Now I understand the word "accordance" means in parallel with, on the same page as, saying the same thing as. In accordance with the gospel. Is that blowing anybody else's mind or am I just missing something? That this law, this Old Testament is in accordance with, on the same page as, parallel with, saying the same thing as the Gospel. Wow. Is, is any, does that change how you talk about Jesus to people who don't know Jesus? I think it might need to. I tell this story sometimes at school, and I don't know that I've told you before, so pardon me if I've, if I've told you this before, but I've talked to certain people before about the gospel, and I remember telling this guy one time that Jesus came to die for him, and his response was like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Man, I'm sorry about that. Who, why did he die for me? Like, who's Jesus, and why did he have to die for me? I'm, I'm okay. The idea that he has a problem... Totally not even there. Totally not even there. It's not even in this framework of thinking that he's a sinner. As far as he knows, he's good. I mean, he got the participation trophy when he was eight. He didn't do anything special, but he was there, so he gets a trophy. I'm good. Right? No, you're not. You're at war with God, and He's going to crush you. There's... Yeah... This is not good for you. The good news means there's some bad news. And the bad news is you're guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. And the Father's going to crush you for that. But the good news is This law that reveals my sin and shows me my need for a savior is in accord with the gospel, meaning I need to be careful how I define the gospel. Like it's not just some flippant two-point outline I work through. There's some truth that needs to be communicated. Notice he says this is in accordance with the gospel of the word of is fascinating to me. I love I love the genitive in in and I'm sorry to do a Greek lesson for you here. It's the English, of. It shows relationship to. It sometimes can define. That's called apposition. If you want to go get nerdy and look stuff up, it's they stand in apposition to one another. Meaning the two words on either side of the of define each other. Right? These, these are in apposition to one another. In accordance with the gospel of. So the law and the gospel are on the same page. They're in accord. And it is of the glory of. Of the blessed God. The glory of the blessed God. Meaning the law reveals glory. The law and the gospel show me glory. Weightiness. Amazing things. Holy things. Astounding. Things that make people sit in awe. The glory of the blessed God. The glory of the blessed God. Meaning that blessedness is first and foremost defined by who God is, not what I receive. How does that change the way you define blessed? If you were sitting today under a bridge, penniless, out of your mind and no clothes, would you count yourself blessed if you believed in Jesus? Many of us may say, no. I'm blessed if I have my F-250. I'm blessed if I have my huge thing or my toy or many toys. I'm blessed if I possess health and happiness and all the stuff that my American culture says I ought to have. Not I'm in prison because I believe the gospel. You know that Chinese house church pastor is blessed? I guarantee you he would say he is. We might look at him and wonder how he's been disobedient. This law, this gospel message is of the wondrous, amazing truth of God who defines blessedness. I put a little thing, if you're looking at the notes, just it's 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 word study. It's from it's Greek lexicon on the word blessed. And this word differs from the word happy in that the person is happy who has good luck from the root Hap meaning luck as favorable as a favorable circumstance. Did you ever realize the root of the word happy is hap, which means luck based on a favorable circumstance? Now, first of all, if you're a Christian, you have no business believing in luck. You believe in providence, right? There's no such thing as chance, right? The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision from the Lord, meaning God's ruling history. It's not like, wow, lucky me, right? Blessed, blessed differs from the word happy. To be blessed is equivalent to having God's kingdom within. Aristotle contrasts the word blessed or blessed to one word that means the needy one. Therefore, blessed is the one in this world yet independent of this world. whose. In this world, yet independent of it. His satisfaction comes from God and not from favorable circumstances. Now, here's what's crazy here. This is what's blowing my mind. Paul's not speaking about us being blessed. He's speaking about God being blessed. In other words, He, God Himself, is the One who is not of this world yet. He is here with us in this world. Transfer that to the Christian life. We find ourselves blessed if we walk in Christ regardless of our circumstance. Because we have the One who defines what blessed is. This is why the church flourishes under persecution. Is because they recognize, I have Jesus and that's all I need. We have Jesus and everything else and are miserable. Meaning we're not blessed because we've yet to understand the full implication of the gospel, of the glory of the blessed God. Jesus changes everything. He's a game changer. He's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's not a chain to yank to get God to give you more stuff. He's not your good luck charm. He is everything. And if you have Him, you have everything. And Paul says this is in accord with the law. Can you think of some examples in the Old Testament who lived that out? I mean, i got a list a mile long. Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What about some of the prophets? What about Isaiah who was cut in half? Was he blessed? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Absolutely. And Paul says that this law is in accord with this gospel that we preach. Hey, how does that transfer how we talk about the gospel in a prosperous culture? That changes strategy, doesn't it? I'm not presenting Jesus as a means to get anything. If I get Jesus, I get everything. And you've got to be careful how you hear that. Because in a Western mind, you hear that, as, if I get Jesus, I get stuff. No, 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 no. If you get Jesus, you get everything because Jesus is everything. So if you have nothing, you've got everything. That's a game changer, y'all. Paul says, that's the right use of the law. That's the proper use of the text. Not speculating, not building false teaching on obscure passages, but centering down on the glorious truth of the glory of the God who defines what it means to be blessed. Well, if you discover next week you have cancer, are you any less blessed? Because this book tells me that He rules history well. He gives boils and He takes boils away. He gives life and He takes life. And He works for the good of His people come what may. And if I have cancer in Jesus, I have everything. Paul says that's, that's the ground of this glorious law That accords with this gospel. And then finally, Paul says, with which I have been entrusted. Paul's been entrusted with this gospel message. And you know what? We have been too. You've been entrusted with this law, this gospel, this truth. And so therefore, we who've been entrusted with the gospel need to love it, know it, and guard it. We must become experts in using it to preach Christ. One of my favorites is Acts 8:26 to 40 when Philip preaches from Isaiah to the Ethiopian servant, the Ethiopian eunuch. He can show him his lostness. He can show him his war against the Father. He can show him the Father's love to send the Son to die and rise so that he can be restored to the Father. We've been entrusted with this gospel. And church, check this out. It is, it is the epicenter of everything we are. Everything must center around on that truth. If it doesn't, it's useless and worthless. No good. So I say to us in conclusion this morning, as we wrap up this section, let God's people, let us revel in this glorious gospel this glorious, beautiful gospel, this blessed God that has been revealed cover to cover. Let's revel in it. We have scripture that tells us all we need to know. Father has not left us without witness. A tattered Bible, tattered from page turning and seeking God, belongs to a life that is well-ordered regardless of how it looks on the outside. We have the manual that teaches us this glorious truth of the blessed God. He's given us what we need to know. We have a glorious message that we need to revel in. By the way, the reason you're not counted sinner today if you're in Christ is because Jesus fulfilled that law for you. All of my coveting He paid for. Past, present, and future. And so therefore, this glorious message needs to be reveled in. You know what that does for you? That makes me say, thank you. It's all I got. I can bring nothing to the table. I can't pay for it. I can't even put on the right clothes. How much more earn favor before God? So I look to Christ and say, Thank you. And you know what we do in sort of a roundabout way when we sing? We're saying to the Lord, Thank you. So I invite you this morning to engage the triune God of the Bible this morning and responding to Him in worship and giving thanks for this glorious law that reveals the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which we have been entrusted. He is worthy of our worship. And if we live, sleep, eat, and breathe that, we will be a people for His own possession, making great the name of Jesus. And I believe we can make a difference in our town and the world as we have been as we will continue to do together. Under this banner. Let's pray. Father, I beg of you this morning to do among your people a glorious and amazing work of grace where our eyes are opened and compelled to see and savor Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, please rule well. Please search hearts. Please show us our sin. Please show us our need, continual need for a Savior. Teach us how to walk away from sin and walk to holiness. Produce in us a greater desire for holiness than for sin. Teach us how to order our days and our hours and our moments. Teach us how to please you and how not to make you sad. Teach us how to desire the things that make you happy. Teach us how to speak boldly. Teach us how to speak gently. Teach us when we need to be angry. I pray that you would put that in us and do that work in us and help us to be patient with each other as we grow in all that. Lord, that's a lifetime dream. Lord, I have a hunch we'll all be working on that when we are completed either at our death or at the day of Christ Jesus. So Lord, work that in us, please. Again, I pray that you would come against the effects of the evil one. And I pray that you would release your people to make much of you today. Stir us, Lord Jesus. Stir us. So that we can give you thanks and honor that is due to you.